We should start by telling our listeners that in this episode, we're coming for farmers markets. <laughs> really though, they, they are expensive and not for us. I never felt comfortable going in one, you know? I like want to be a farmer's market girl. <laughs> I felt like that when I was living in the East Village. I was like, I will go and get fresh vegetables in the morning every Saturday. And it never happened. I just, like the prices, like if you go and look at it, like the prices are ridiculous. Well, it's actually, you know, at first I'm like, wow, this is really cheap. Mm-hmm. But it adds up. It's, yeah, it's like Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It definitely adds up. You're like, oh my god, this three ninety nine jam, and then you're like, suddenly paying two hundred dollars at the register. Mm-hmm. We're coming for farmers markets. We're coming for veganism. <laughs> yes, definitely. But also, we're not coming for them. They because... came for us. Exactly. They came for us first. We were the ones who started all of this. From farm to table, from eating vegetarian and vegan diet to basically being sustainable, you know? Yeah. Except our sustainability isn't sold. Exactly. So let's get into that. I mean, how? what is the current state of sustainability for you? I, whenever I think about that word, I can't relate to it, you know? Like, it seems so much of an outside force that I have to buy into it. I have to do things that will make me spend money to achieve the level of sustainability, you know? Yes, and that seems so counterproductive that you have to spend money to be sustainable. Yeah. I mean, I think that sustainability as it stands today, I think of a white yogi. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Who is like selling me bamboo toothbrushes from her Etsy store. Oh, and, God. you know, is preaching veganism, doing, mm-hmm. you know, organic produce without taking into consideration that this is not a realistic lifestyle for everyone. Mm-hmm. And even when it is a realistic lifestyle, it isn't rooted in whiteness and it isn't rooted in capitalism. Yeah. Because the truth is everyone. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But the <laughs> truth is... You shouldn't have to buy something mm-hmm. to be sustainable. Exactly. It's in your practices. And we will get into it today. This is Nicole. This is Tanati. And this is Well Done, the podcast. So we've talked about it, kind of. Mm-hmm. We're like, okay, sustainability is rooted in whiteness and capitalism, mm-hmm. as in the people heading it in the mainstream media are white. Yep. Top influencers, the people at the top of the hashtags are mm-hmm. white. And it it's not doesn't target people of color ever, you know? Mm-hmm. It is sold to white people in hopes that they will profit out of what they haven't built. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yoga and wellness mm-hmm. is a whole other topic. Yeah, that we're not getting into today, but should be talked about since the, that was also stolen. So let's actually zoom into our topic, which is sustainability and food. Yeah, and this is what I mean when I say we're coming for farmer's mm-hmm. markets. Because, I mean, think about every farmer's market mm-hmm. you've been to. Where are they? In rich neighborhoods. Um, the one that I was most familiar with was in Union Square. Who lives in Union Square? white people who are rich does anyone actually live in union square besides like Barnes and Noble I don't know anyone who lives in union square <laughs> <laughs> no, 
not in our network. <laughs> nope. But, okay, so this is the cool thing about farmer's markets. We're mm-hmm. not alone in this thought. Mm-hmm. Two professors from the University of San Diego, Pascal Dussard Mazzelli and Fernando De- J. Bosco, wrote an anthology called Just Green Enough, mm-hmm. where they make the correlation between the whiteness of farmer's markets and mm-hmm. gentrification. Mm-hmm. They also say that farmer's markets cater to households from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, which raises property values and displaces low-income residents and people of color. Which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that farmer's markets do is Mm -hmm. that it normalizes how white people consume food. Yeah, but like that so makes sense because the like the higher the economic, you know, background you have, like you have access to fresher foods you know Mm -hmm. also like where you get it from it could be local markets that are like outside of your city you know that farmers can bring to you you know yes exactly and farmers are less likely to travel all the way Mm -hmm. and bring their produce to communities that can't afford it and this directly works against local activists and residents who first mobilize Mm -hmm. to fight environmental justice and yeah. fight for healthy foods in their neighborhoods mm-hmm. uh, and directly I mean directly works for developers and gentrifiers yeah it's like it's a brand like fresh foods like you can live a lifestyle of being a fluent white person <laughs> yeah the Trader Joe's going yeah tote bag carrying <laughs> wait this sounds like me yep <laughs> no, I was like I grew a Trader Joe's <laughs> I carry a tote bag I know <laughs> but that's what I mean I mean we're really lucky to have access to food mm-hmm. but tons of people don't especially if you're a person of color mm-hmm. you're way more likely not to so going into veganism just a little bit let's talk about why it's a little problematic right now so as I found through research, veganism was first founded in 1944 by this guy named Donald Watson. And we're not going to tell you what race he is, but you can guess. Yeah, you can guess it. Him and a few of his members of this organization called the Vegan Society put together the term veganism or vegetarianism. They just took the first two letters of vegetarianism and the last two letters and combined it to form vegan. Wow, so not only did they steal <laughs> and co-opt yeah. a whole, not even one culture, many cultures mm-hmm. form a diet, yeah. they also just are boring with their names. Mm-hmm. That's upsetting. Yeah, uh, I was very surprised at how easy <laughs> this all seems to be. I yeah. know. Yes, that is so important to think about. Like how easy it is to co-opt something when cultures yeah. have been formed around food, mm-hmm. been created around diets and i mean you were talking about this the other day mm-hmm. how your mom maybe you want to tell that story about your mom and what she said about the food she was growing up with yeah i mean so i was just talking to my mom recently and she just finds it fascinating that now we have access to so much food in general and whenever we want to eat it but she has fond memories of when she was growing up and all her cousins and all her aunts and uncles would come together and they would eat mangoes in the morning but they were like seasonal you know so like they would have like a whole room full of mangoes and they would like wake up early in the morning and then just eat them but then she was telling me that like it's the food that was made was seasonal and was only locally produced so they would only eat certain fruits and vegetables 
in the winter so their diets were based on that also from the region she was in india from so not every state has the same land formation and like temperature so every state has a different diet in india so like now everyone eats like everything but before she wouldn't really find a good indian curry that is normalized as the indian food in the us yeah. like when she was growing up because that's not what her diet was yeah i mean that's amazing and i don't know i think it's problematic when you put all these pieces together mm-hmm. and, you know the farmers market thing yeah. don't even talk talk about organic food to my mom mm-hmm. she's just like darling no like we can't afford that it's so yeah. expensive and it is expensive it is expensive it although shouldn't it shouldn't be. be yeah it shouldn't be i mean i think it's ridiculous to that you're going to price out people mm-hmm. out you're going to price people out of healthier food yeah I mean that makes no sense to me. And but to my mom, I mean access to food has always been a discussion around money. Mhm. Yeah. Of ha- course it so. has not been a discussion around anything else <laughs> around health. Yeah. Which is the purpose of food, mm-hmm. nourishing us. So when we think about the impact of whitewashing, veganism, mm-hmm. organic produce, farmers market, all of that stuff, I mean what are the problems really? The problem is the biggest problem is that it doesn't it's not accessible to people of color or black people because usually it happens that those are the people not living in areas with the higher resources which means healthier grocery stores or other food food areas where they can go in a easier way or like access it within the given lifestyle yeah Um going to do a little side note here mm-hmm. to explain what a food desert is mm-hmm. which is what you were describing yeah which is basically areas in America in America mm-hmm. where there's no access to fresh foods and grocery stores yeah i mean there's research done that like usually in a lower uh, in a poor area the minimum time someone can take to get it to a grocery store is 30 minutes you know mm-hmm. maximum could be much longer yeah but just think about that like if you're going to work coming back you don't have your groceries you would have to travel 30 minutes one way to get to a store yes and the trip gets even longer if you don't have a car yeah if you're living in a city with or rural area mm-hmm. with limited public transport mm-hmm. i mean how do you get food you exactly. have to rely on what's cheapest mm-hmm. and what's nearby and yeah. in lower income neighborhoods there are also way more fast food restaurants mm-hmm. to supplement yeah. the lack of exactly. grocery stores exactly on top of that when you whitewash something like veganism it seems really elitist mm-hmm. and inaccessible when its roots are actually in the poorest areas of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, these communities like the moms mm-hmm. are vegan out of need yeah. or vegan out of what's available mm-hmm. in around them. Yeah, and that's that's sustainable because that's the way they have to be, you know. There's no ulterior motive of like we have to save the planet or our bodies, you know. It's yeah. like we have this and that's how we eat healthier. I mean, yeah, but I think there is more of a concern for the planet too. It is, but not in the forefront of this. Right now, I feel veganism is yes for your body, like to be better, to not torture animals, mm-hmm. to and like just be mindful of what you eat. But at the same time, when 
our moms were doing that you know they were thinking about what's the easiest way i can get this food from the nearest possible source yeah and that i mean also there was no like you know export import happening at that time like at, at this level they mm-hmm. couldn't get anything else they had to rely on what was there yeah so we like it was more grown from necessity than anything else yeah and also it's when when these phenomenon veganism sustainability as a whole are co-opted by white people mm-hmm. it becomes exhausting for people of color mm-hmm. because you know for people of color you're dealing with racial violence mm-hmm. systematic inequality mm-hmm. i mean for most people of color it seems like veganism and sustainability is like the last thing on your mind yeah also like just how expensive a vegan product is you mm-hmm. know if you go to a grocery store like you will find that vegan products are the most costliest yeah and how would that be accessible to yourself if you don't have the means to buy that yeah also it's the ve- the sustainability movement and the ve- movement for veganism that's led by white people mm-hmm. doesn't include people of color yeah it doesn't so i mean people of color are less likely to join a movement that isn't for them mm-hmm. it's only now that i mean black sustainability experts black vegans have always been there mm-hmm. but they just haven't got the shine they deserve yeah. the representation they deserve mm-hmm. to really bring people in those communities yeah together into the movement yeah which is interesting because that really makes me think about how have black and brown people led this movement mm-hmm. for sustainability for food access historically oh it's been there forever the first i can think of was um my religion my half religion which is jainism my dad is jain and so this um religion was born before 900 bce and it is rooted one of the principles of it is rooted in nonviolence which means nonviolence against evil insects and so that is a major part of the diet that we consume which is like you cannot eat fruit and vegetables because that kills the whole plant it's not just a pro- the fruit that you can like you know take take off, take yeah. off. but anything that kills the whole plant you cannot eat and that was formed before 900 BCE you know and it's still practiced today and my grandma still practices it today yeah so she doesn't know what vegan is by the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a, yeah i mean but she would be considered a vegan mm-hmm. because most vegans also don't consume milk yeah that is one thing she does because we drink tea right religiously <laughs> and on top of that i mean and in that way i mean you can bring it back to america mm-hmm. where enslaved black people also relied on sustainable methods mm-hmm. for out of necessity yeah and carla hall she's one of my favorite cooks like one of mm-hmm. my favorite chefs in her book soul food she covers this mm-hmm. i mean right in the introduction she reclaims soul food yeah from something that's been commercialized she says sort of exorbitantly mismanaged mm-hmm. and taken over she reclaims it and says that enslaved african americans were cooking farm to table centuries before it was a label mm-hmm. to slap on restaurants they foraged they pickled they mm-hmm. preserved for survival yeah and she laughs and says all our farms were quote organic <laughs> uh, and so i think that's really interesting because white people have co-opted every aspect of food production mm-hmm. and every aspect of sustainable food production including 
farm to table mm-hmm. restaurants. Yeah. And including using what you have yeah. around you, that is not new. Mm-hmm. It's been there. And the thing is, the difference between what's happening now and what was happening then is mm-hmm. choice. Yeah. Also. So oh, people of color sometimes just do not have mm-hmm. the options. Yeah. Even now. Oh, they definitely don't. And exactly, like then it was necessity. Now, places where people practice this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, within white communities, it's a choice to take on. Yeah, definitely. And spend exorbitant amount of money to do so. Yeah. And even when it comes to vegan and vegetarian lifestyles, mainstream media, food critics, contributors, they've all ignored the contribution, contributions made by people of color mm-hmm. in the name of sustainability, in the names of food justice. Mm-hmm. These contributions have also, people of color are the people that have preserved authentic cuisines mm-hmm. that white people co-opt and enjoy for yeah. their you know, fusion restaurants and mm-hmm. whatnot. Mexican food, for example, is considered to be meat-heavy and fried, mm-hmm. which ignores the rich cuisine of wholesome plants like nopales, chayote, Chilites and squash. Mm-hmm. In fact, beef isn't even traditional in Mexico. It wow. was it was introduced during Spanish conquest. Damn. Okay. Yeah, of of the country, and in the same way, Carla Hall reminds us that soul food mm-hmm. was mostly vegetarian in the time when it was created mm-hmm. because enslaved Black people did not have access, access to, to meat. meat. Yeah. So most of the most of the food was vegetarian. Or mm. vegan, should we say. <laughs> in the same way, indigenous communities have developed sustainable farming methods, sustainable mm-hmm. food methods that have really relied on the land. Yeah. And only the land mm-hmm. that they occupy. And uh, it has taken on this, it's kind of passed down from generation to generation mm-hmm. orally in what's called traditional knowledge. Mm-hmm. Can I explain it? Traditional knowledge refers to innovations and practices of indigenous and local communities around the world and its experience gained over centuries and adapt to the local culture adapted to the local culture and environment. And now traditional knowledge is being co-opted by white people mm-hmm. in their own farming. Yeah. And in their own green quote unquote practices <laughs> for their own farms. Yeah. With no credit given to indigenous communities. A lot of farming practices in the U.S. is white, so you wouldn't find as many farmers of color or black farmers in the mainstream farming industry. Exactly. Although, as we know, migrant workers Mm -hmm. and black farmers do exist. And they have existed for as long as Mm -hmm. this country has existed. Yeah. Just mostly uncredited. And their work... Yeah, that they... Their land is either stolen from them or <laughs> yeah. their work is... is Yeah, it's stolen. I mean, there's no exceptions towards that. But now we are see, seeing people, um, people of color taking back small steps, but they are. So, yes, Benjamin is a farmer in Albany. Mm-hmm. And she, she realized when she was learning farming techniques that all the farmers around her were white. And the techniques that they were using were from the African diaspora. What? Yes. That's 
I mean, that's that's exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. And that it's these technologies are being used without even knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that these white farmers even knew that they were using no, they African, didn't. West African technologies. For example, farmers have grown marigolds and other beneficial flowers next to crops because they attract insects like ladybugs to the natural pest control. But this technique was first birthed in Nigeria and Ghana. Yeah, and that technique is called polyculture now. But yeah. this technique goes back thousands of years mm-hmm. to West Africa. But what I've researched, like when I was researching this, I found that because so much of this of US, of America, was built on enslaved people, they brought their practices, and white people didn't know what they were doing. So they didn't mm. know how to farm. Yes, actually... Edda Field Black, an associate professor of history at Carnegie Mellon, actually studied the history of West African rice farmers. Mm-hmm. Super niche. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she says that the rice industry in South Carolina and Georgia would not have been possible without West African techniques. Mm-hmm. And this is her quote, all right, which, is, which says exactly what you just mm-hmm. said. We don't always understand enough about all the things that enslaved people built in the U.S. It's not just labor. It's not just brawn. Mm-hmm. This is technology. This is ingenuity. This is engineering. This is hydraulics. It's all rooted in West Africa. Wow. But exactly. This is from, not from here. Like all of this came from the ancestral roots of black and white people, you know? Yes, absolutely. In the same way that veganism has been co-opted by white people, so has specific Mm -hmm. foods that were originally sustainably grown Mm -hmm. and indigenous to the place Mm -hmm. that it was grown in. Yeah. I mean, obviously. Uh, I'm thinking things like maca root, Mm -hmm. chia seeds, spirulina, and and cacao. You may... I mean, we know these nutrients. Yeah. They're in all the smoothie bowls mm-hmm. in New York City. Definitely seen in smoothie places. But they're indigenous to Latin America. And in recent years, it's only been in recent years that these ingredients have gained, gained prominence mm-hmm. in the United States. And they're becoming readily available, mm-hmm. over-farmed, yeah. and just sold in health kit. So in addition to... In addition, I mean, you know, I can think of every single... I can think of almost every culture that, you know, our friend group is in mm-hmm. that has some sort of uh, rice and grain and bean mm-hmm. <laughs> combo. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And so it's things like quinoa and lentils mm-hmm. or tofu, collard greens, chia seeds, all these health foods, yeah. all these vegan foods, mm-hmm. all these sources of protein have long been sources of protein for us. Yeah. I mean, lentils... I actually didn't know what lentils were until I came to America. Oh, yeah, I just called them dal. Yeah. <laughs> I just <laughs> never knew what lentils meant. I was like, huh? Okay. Yeah, and it's like lentils is, oh, yeah, eat your lentil soup. And, you know, but it's yeah, it's like it's, it's been used in Middle Eastern food and <laughs> it's been used in South Asian food. Oh, yeah. I mean, all these things that I see being sold in bulk, all mm-hmm. these grains being sold, sold in bulk at Whole Foods. Mm-hmm have been, you know, sold in bulk in Sri Lankan roadside shops. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, like, we, like, even here, like, the first thing my mom, like, when we first got here, found, we found it in the store. We would go to an Indian store and get these, like, these lentils, like, you know, rice, all these beans in humongous bags because we use them daily yeah. for our diets. Exactly. And, I mean, there's something hurtful about the fact that they're, easily co-opted for me Mm -hmm. because not only are these 
just beans mm-hmm. or they're also I don't know the history of our people yeah I mean I feel like every recipe my mom shares with me on FaceTime mm-hmm. or my grandma whatsapps me yeah is a passing of a memory mm-hmm. or a passing of a like a tradition yeah and I mean these are recipes that have been developed over generations mm-hmm. over centuries and of course they should be shared and loved and all of mm-hmm. that but just to be co-opted with no <laughs> with first of all no sustainable practice yeah and two to be used described in Alison Roman's cookbook <laughs> as the stew when yeah. it's really like a chickpea curry yeah you know a turmeric curry <laughs> I mean Alison Roman didn't invent turmeric guys also another thing that we found in our research was in West Indies followers of Rastafarianism only eat unmodified food grown from the earth around them that's the ultimate form of sustainability you know absolutely uh, this means that generally avoiding anything that has chemicals or food is altered by chemicals you know mm-hmm. but that's what we try to avoid in our in the name of veganism here now yeah and in the name of sustainability mm-hmm. and in the name of food access <laughs> yeah at POC have always so since we know that people of color have always led this effort Mm -hmm. we really wanted to speak with someone who is making sustainability accessible Mm -hmm. to our Brooklyn community so we'd like to introduce you to Jenny my name is Jenny I use she her pronouns and I'm the founder of Heirloom. It's a sustainability platform where essentially I'm just talking about going back to the basics and really trying to showcase accessibility within the neighborhood for what we have here. So Jenny heads Heirloom Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and her strategy for increasing accessibility to food is education and her number one rule is work with what you have. Yep. I would start I started kind of just changing my lifestyle and altering my lifestyle around probably around two years ago um and I started just by starting to carry around a reusable tote bag everywhere the issue with sustainability and like kind of what's been pushed is like for people to make these like huge huge changes in their lifestyle and they're almost like these impulsive changes that don't tend to stick you know, and everyone has a farm and they're growing, you know, an abundance of food and, you know, all these things. And it's just not realistic, especially for people who live in urban communities and especially people who live in marginalized communities within the urban communities. So um, it was really important for me to just start with what was actually, I was actually able to do. My father is from Costa Rica and, um, when they came here, like just just watching my my grandparents and seeing how the things that they did with so little, also thinking about how you know we aren't highlighted. These ways of living are not put on the forefront. Like these aren't things that we talk about. Is a lot of like in a lot of white people just showcasing these lives. If you even think about back to land ownership, like they, it's a privilege for them to live this life because they are granted these different opportunities that that black people are not granted. So it's really important for for me to show people that we can do this as well. Um, and I think it's really important. To to have representation um, and people that look like you.
So what does the future of sustainability look like? I mean, for Jenny, mm-hmm. it starts small. Yeah. Also think about like just the things that your parents know and and things that you don't know and the lost trades that had happened in those generations. Even how to plant and grow your own food. My mom has all these tricks and I'm these are natural things that her mom taught her and unfortunately I was like, What happened yeah. <laughs> in this gap? But um, you know, just going back to the basics and really just learning from them. For Leah Penniman, the founder of Soul Fire Farm, who we talked about earlier. Yep who we talked about earlier. Our strategy is to train Black and Latinx farmers in growing techniques and management practices from the African diaspora so they can play a part in addressing food access, Mm -hmm. health disparities, and other social issues. Something that I love Mm -hmm. that she believes in is that she says that she has found real power and dignity through food and that people with zero experience in gardening and farming can do the same. Yeah, it's also important that white vegans take an active role in putting this practice of veganism back and giving it back to people of color, you know? Yes. And giving them credit for basically bringing this to the world, you know? Also, instead of just activating Mm -hmm. your white peers, Mm -hmm. how can you bring healthy vegan food into other communities? Yeah. And that you can do that by supporting local community fridges, mm-hmm. um, like the one that we have here in New York, yeah, or yeah. community gardens, fighting for more supermarkets and healthy mm-hmm. food and regulation that empowers that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically just contributing your privilege to getting access to healthier foods for all communities, not just white communities. Yeah, absolutely. So final thoughts. Before we head out, I feel like sustainability has always been there within me and within my family. And I just realized like what my mom used to practice back in India was something that is sustainable here. Yeah. I mean, we were talking to Jenny about this yeah. uh, during our interview, but you know, I was like joking about how when my mom came to New York, mm-hmm. I was like, mom, we recycle, <laughs> we got to do this sustainably, like, you know, compost, whatever. Mm-hmm. And she's like, we've been doing this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't call it recycling. We just call it reduce, reuse, mm-hmm. reuse again, reuse, change the form of it, change <laughs> the use of it. Like, um, one t-shirt lasts seven cycles of change, mm-hmm. as they say. Yeah. I mean, everything is sustainable mm-hmm. out of necessity. Exactly. And, yeah, like, it's just we have to take back from our families and put into action here, you know? Yeah. And you know something that's really inspiring to me is that sustainability has been a tool that people of color have used mm-hmm. for liberation this whole time. Yeah. I mean, we have used it to take control of our bodies. Mm-hmm. We've used it to take control of our health. We've used it to take control of our land mm-hmm. and help our communities. I think that's amazing. And, I mean, we've never gotten credit for it. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by people like Jenny. I'm inspired by people like Leah mm-hmm. up in Albany. Yeah, that's amazing. That is, I want to try farming. I know, we should all learn. We should learn, seriously though. But like, we should just take small steps that we can put back into our routines of to be sustainable. But that doesn't mean that you have to go buy 
a five dollar, you know, I don't know, something from a thirty dollar bag from <laughs> yeah. a reusable bag store. Uh, yeah, but like in general, like a grocery stores, like go don't go buy vegan foods in the grocery store where you can just like you know eat from your local you know, markets around you mm-hmm. and support the local community. Yeah, that is giving so much to you, but you don't get credit to. Yes, and also stop saying namaste if you're yoga class. Okay, Please that's it. Not, that is not not related, <laughs> but <laughs> that's not related. But namaste. Oh no! Please don't do it. <laughs> don't. Um. Anyways, this was us. Um. I feel like we need a song to dance us out of this because this has been a lot. Okay, edit the song. I will try. I'm dancing out. Okay, this bye. is Nicole. This is Nadi. And this is 12 Ounces, the podcast. Take it from